On this episode of Pilot's Discretion, we're joined by longtime flight instructor and author Tom Turner. He shares instrument flying tips, gear up landing statistics, and his opinion on whether it's ever okay to get out of an airplane with the engine running. Pilot's Discretion starts right now. Welcome, pilots. I'm your host, John Zimmerman of Sporties, and thanks for listening. Remember to visit sporties.com slash podcast for today's show links and complete archives, and send your comments to podcast at sporties.com. February is IFR month at Sporties, a four-week focus on the wonderful world of instrument flying. You can find all our IFR articles, videos, quizzes, and product specials at sporties.com slash IFR. And I couldn't think of a better guest on the topic of IFR flying than today's guest, Tom Turner. He is an ATP and one of aviation's best-known flight instructors, as evidenced by his 2015 induction into the Flight Instructor Hall of Fame. Tom has taught at the Beechcraft Factory and is currently executive director of the American Bonanza Society's Air Safety Foundation, so he's a real bonanza expert. He's also a prolific writer, having authored multiple aviation books and thousands of articles over the years. And I think his weekly flying lessons newsletter is absolutely a must read for any pilot who's serious about flying safely. Tom, welcome to Pilot's Discretion. Thanks, John. I appreciate you asking me to be here. So as I mentioned, it's IFR month here at Sporties. Naturally, that means I'm going to ask you about IFR topics. Good enough. And to start, I thought, uh, let's put this in some historical context. Some people argue that with all the tools we have now, like moving map GPSs, data link weather, autopilots, instrument flying has never been easier. Some people argue the opposite, that actually all these tools make it harder. So which side do you come down on? Is instrument flying easier than it used to be or harder? I think overall it's it's easier, much easier than it used to be. However, it requires a great deal of training, commitment, and currency to take advantage of the uh, advances that we have now. I remember the first time I ever flew IFR in an airplane with DME, so that ages me a little bit. And comparing that to uh, uh, flying along with uh, typically the way I've got the Bonanza laid out when I fly it, I've got seven different GPS navigators running. It's a completely different world now. And how do you think the training industry has reacted? Have we learned how to teach instrument flying with those tools, or are we still playing some catch-up? Uh, well, they're really, I think there are two different uh, parallel tracks there. I think that the, uh, the, uh, the college and university-based and uh, large uh, career-based flight schools have uh, done a very, very good job of learning how to teach the use of these technologies because they have it. In many cases, the equipment is relatively homogeneous. It's a G1000 panel and a 172 no matter where you go. And uh, they have students that are in a dedicated program to learn how to operate this equipment. Uh, out here where I operate, in uh, primarily in the transition and recurrent training world, uh, avionics is the biggest single challenge I think we have as instructors because at least in, in uh, the planes that I fly in, uh, there is no one standard. There are lots of options available, and the individual airplane owner decides which options he or she installs in the airplane. So uh, when I get in somebody's airplane for a flight review, uh, it, it's the first time I've ever been in that aircraft. And I, as instructor, have to orient myself to what they have and how they interface with one another. So uh, that's the. it's become very challenging in the uh, recurrent training world. 
to uh, incorporate uh, these devices because individual instructors don't have the opportunity sometimes to get experience themselves in a particular panel layout. What skill do you think is most overlooked by instrument pilots these days when you get into one of those flight review scenarios or an IPC? Is it the avionics knowledge or is it the basic attitude instrument flying? What should we all be practicing more as instrument pilots? Well, well, the irony is that uh, automation uh, helps supplement our basic flying skills, but unless a pilot is extremely proficient in the avionics in their airplane, it can actually be a detriment. Uh, so there, there are really two things. When I fly uh, recurrent training, if I do an IPC with somebody, I'm going to ensure that they can both hand fly the airplane and fly using, uh, you know, with the appropriate level of, of uh, automation. But uh, uh, probably the biggest single skill uh, deficit that I see right now is uh, reverting to basic uh, hand flying of the airplane in IMC uh, when you are, in this case, simulating some sort of outage of the avionics system. Let's talk about single pilot IFR in particular, which is most listeners, I suspect, to this podcast and a lot of what you train with. And I thought you had a great recent article. You wrote about the importance of asking a question, am I ready for this? What do you mean by that? Well, I used a particular accident scenario that got a lot of press, uh, but I wasn't really commenting on that particular accident. What I was thinking instead with that was a constant self-evaluation, not only before flight to determine if, uh, if the conditions are appropriate for attempting a flight and whether you as the pilot have the currency and the skills to to fly the flight under those conditions, but also to be reassessing yourself constantly as you go on throughout the flight. And I was particularly talking about uh, cases where uh, uh, the pilot in that accident, that particular accident scenario was given a reroute and didn't head to the, appeared to have not headed to the correct intersection, but another one that was spelled fairly similarly. Uh, and then, uh, after recovering from that, uh, having some difficulty intercepting the approach course and then eventually descending below minimums and that sort of thing. And the idea there is that when I am given a new route, you know, I have a, an amendment to your clearance ready to copy, you copy the clearance and you dial in before you, you know, hit that, you know, activate the autopilot and nav mode, ask yourself just very quickly, is everything ready to go on this. One, two, three, yes, hit it. And then verify that it's actually going where you want it to go. When you get closer into the terminal environment, am I really proficient with the conditions that exist now? Now, maybe what I saw when I did my pre-flight planning a couple of hours ago, but uh, if conditions if conditions have changed, if the weather's lower, if the wind is, is stronger, is that still within my current proficiency envelope. And if it's not, don't give it a try and see how it works out. Go ahead and divert somewhere else. This is this is a maybe a more advanced way of saying always have an out. Uh, and it's, it's saying not only should you always have your out, have a, a way out, but you want to decide to execute that strategy before you have a problem, not after. Yeah, I remember one of my early instrument instructors telling me that that final approach fix is really 
it's in a sense, it's do or die time because it's one of the few times where you're going to descend knowingly very close to terrain and possibly without any sight of it. And if you're not absolutely 100% sure of exactly where you are and where you're going, you have no business leaving that final approach fix and starting down. Exactly. All checklist actions that could be, be complete. Actually, from the final approach fix, inbound is probably the easiest part of preparing for an instrument approach because if you've done your job correctly at that point, all the preparation is done. All you have to do is fly the procedure. How safe is IFR flying? You know, we're talking about, in, in your case, you referenced a fairly well-known accident that happened recently. Do we take on additional risk when we launch into the clouds? I mean, a, a lot of insurance companies will give you a discount when you get an instrument rating because you become a better pilot, theoretically. But are we safer when we fly IFR? Uh, we have a greater number of safe options when we fly IFR. Assuming, of course, that you are you know, proficient in, in the skills, um, obviously, if you have the ability to fly in reduced visibility or uh, through lower clouds and you do it correctly, then you have safer options than the pilot who is limited to VFR operation who, or who holds an instrument rating but is not instrument current or flying an airplane that's not equipped the way they're used to. Uh, so uh, uh Visual flying can be extraordinarily safe. Instrument flying can be extraordinarily safe as well. Uh, in both cases, it depends on the choices we make and the uh, experience we have. You've researched and written a lot on engine failures, and that's one thing that doesn't always top the list in instrument accidents. Oftentimes, they're pilot-related. But I'm interested in your perspective on engine failures or engine problems in IMC, because that's a nightmare scenario for many instrument pilots. So what can we as pilots and aircraft owners be doing to prevent engine failure or react to it if it happens in on an IFR flight? Well, um, I've uh, fairly recently done a webinar for the American Bonanza Society, and I looked at a full decade's worth of uh, engine failure accidents that were uh, in the NTSB reports for Beach Bonanzas and Debonairs. And uh, with a fleet of approximately 7,500 airplanes, uh, and, uh, or excuse me, about 10,000 airplanes and, and, and assuming a very uh, conservative 75 hours per year uh, of operation, that's 7.5 million operating hours of this fleet in a decade's time. And in that time, there were only 159 reported NTSB reported engine failures. So uh, that's, that's actually telling us that the engines are extraordinarily reliable. There are definite trends in those engine failures that did occur. Uh, almost half of them are the result of fuel management or mismanagement on the part of the pilot. So one of the most important things we can do, IFR or VFR, is to have a fuel management plan. It can be very simple. You know, if you're lucky to fly an airplane with a both position, you don't worry about it. As long as you have fuel on board, you're, you're good. Uh, as soon as you start to have to manually select fuel tanks from one side to another or auxiliary tanks or whatever, we start to have a, a need for a strategy. And, and then that, that strategy includes monitoring the fuel flow so that when you get to point B on your flight plan, you have approximately the amount of fuel that you expected to have based on your, your pre-flight planning. So uh, if we can manage our fuel better, we can eliminate the biggest single, by a large percentage, the biggest single uh, reason that engines fail 
in the NTSB accident record. Uh, the next most likely thing is related to improper uh, maintenance or repair of the engine, mechanic error, if you will. And so that's harder to uh, guard against, especially if you are not the owner of the airplane and making the decisions where the work is done. Uh, but, uh, you know, in that webinar, I won't go into it much here, but, but, uh, you can make decisions based on, uh, the, uh, the track record of the shop that you're dealing with. And, uh, when you do something major, like an engine overhaul, uh, when you get down beyond the, the fuel issue and the maintenance issues, uh, the other causes of engine failures are, are, you know, little, tiny, you know, percentage here, percentage there across the board. Uh, Paul Bertarelli did a webinar uh, on AvWeb about this as well. And it turns out that uh, when he looked at the general aviation fleet as a whole, the numbers are, the percentages are very, very close to what I had in the Bonanza Debonair world. So everything I learned in my program and my research appears to be valid for the fleet as a whole. So uh, number one, manage your, your fuel correctly. Number two, uh, ensure that the airplane is, uh, the engine is maintained properly. Um, and uh, you mentioned my flying lessons weekly. The, the one that I sent out last night was about listening to your engine. If you have a discrepancy, uh, don't assume it's going to get better. Don't assume it's just going to be a minor annoyance. Uh, it, it may well turn into something that uh, is, is extremely unpleasant. So listen to your engine. If it's giving you abnormal indications or you're not getting the power you expect, uh, get the airplane stopped somewhere now and get it addressed. Those things will protect us. Uh, back to my decade of engine uh, failures, um, uh, some very, very, very small percentage. Uh, I think over that 159, three or four of the mishaps actually occurred in IMC. And that's because, frankly, even instrument pilots uh, spend a relatively small amount of their time actually in instrument conditions. And so it stands to reason that uh, it might reflect the amount of time we actually spend in instrument conditions. Yeah, great tips there. And the the reminder that the pilot and the fuel is number one, I think is always sobering for me. It, it's In a sense, it's good news because we have lots of control over that. I'm a big fan of cockpit flows there that you know every 15 minutes you should be checking just in a, in a quick look at your basic aircraft instruments, your engine instruments, your navigation. And if that fuel is part of that regular flow, boy, it's easier to catch those mistakes or problems uh, much sooner when you have a chance to do something about it. I want to ask you, you mentioned earlier, IFR flying can be very safe, assuming you are you know, equipped and proficient. And that proficient piece is really important because I know lots of pilots who get an instrument rating and then really struggle to stay current with it. What's your best advice for avoiding that fate? What can we do to keep those instrument skills sharp? Well, uh, there's there's no real way. It's like learning a language. Uh, you may get very very good at it, but if you don't speak it a lot, uh, you will th those skills will atrophy. And the same thing goes with instrument flying. Uh, so it just merely takes practice. Uh, I like to get an, an instrument proficiency check at least once a year. That's in addition to any other training I get. Um, it probably ought to do it more frequently. I've, uh, over the last couple of years, I started this during the COVID year when, you know, nobody was going anywhere and I wasn't getting a lot of proficiency. Um, I've started, uh, doing a monthly, a short monthly simulator session with a local FBO that has a, a very nice, uh, Frasca simulator. And then I did a little bit more advanced, uh, three, um, 
three flight deal with them uh, right about Christmas time this year. Uh, so uh, get some practice. You can uh, also just simply hone the skills by um, staying flying in the system, even even if you're flying VFR, flying in the system. Um, Asking for a practice approach when you are, you know, you might be in good visual conditions, but uh, I'm flying over here to, to Moline. When I get there, I'm going to ask for the practice approach. Remember that when you are in visual conditions, whether you're IFR or VFR, you are responsible for seeing in avoiding, but at least you can get some practice with the flow of setting up for an approach and the physical skills of, of flying that approach. Uh, something as simple as being uh, forcing yourself, grading yourself on how uh, precisely you fly, pre how, how when you level off, do I level off within 20 feet of my altitude? Do I maintain my heading within five degrees all of the time? Uh, so uh, uh, even when you're flying visually, you can practice skills that will help you in the clouds, but there's no real substitute for flying by reference to the instruments themselves. So you, if you don't get the uh, the actual practice in flight, you've got to create that experience either by flying with a safety pilot, uh, getting an IPC, which, you know, so you're getting, hopefully getting not only some experience, but some critique and advice about your instrument flying. And I'm a big fan of simulation. It's, uh, you know, it, with with the uh, PC-based simulator world being fairly proficient or uh, prolific around uh, uh, the country, you don't have to go very far to find an FBO that can give you an hour of duel in a simulator. And that is uh, a big skill enhancer. And in my experience, uh, it's a big confidence booster as well. That self-awareness piece, I think, is so important, not just flying, but critiquing yourself. Obviously, an instructor can be a great help with that. But even if you're flying by yourself, just noticing those details I think can can be a great help. The other thing that I find helpful, while not directly related to instrument proficiency, is flying with other pilots. And so I always tell pilots, especially if you're new, find a friend on the field who flies a lot IFR and just offer to be their right seat pilot if they if they never need somebody. Even if you're not flying, yeah. not looking at the instruments, I always find I pick up habits of other pilots that are helpful or I can reflect on instrument flying while I'm not trying to keep the wings level. And I think there's great value in that as well. So my general advice there is just soak up all the IFR experience you can get in whichever way you can get it. Absolutely. Tom, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to ask you about bonanzas and gear up landings. Okay. Earn your instrument rating or get current with Sporty's award-winning instrument rating course. It's everything you need to ace your FAA knowledge test and become a safe instrument pilot with dynamic in-flight video, powerful test prep tools, and a complete document library. Sporty's course works on all your devices, from iPhone to laptop to Apple TV, and your purchase includes free lifetime updates. Plus, now through the end of February, you can save $50 on this complete course, an incredible value. Visit sporties.com instrument to learn more. Now, back to pilot's discretion. We're back with Tom Turner, who knows about as much about bonanzas as anyone in the world, I think. So, Tom, I've got to ask about the old V-tail Dr. Killer reputation from the 60s and 70s with the bonanzas. Was the airplane actually unsafe or was this a pilot problem? 
Well, if, if you look at the accident record, uh, the vast majority of uh, mishaps are the result of uh, you know, the pilot's proficiency in the airplane. And yes, the, uh, the Bonanza's got a reputation early on as, um, uh, as being an unsafe aircraft uh, in the hands of someone who is not a professional pilot. And in that, you know, in the, in the uh, stereotype that, that, that pilot was a, was a doctor. But you have to think about when the Bonanza was introduced into the general aviation world. At that point, uh, in the 50s, when it, it, it earned this reputation, uh, most pilots were transitioning into this airplane directly from a Piper Cub or a Ronca Champ. There was a huge, huge uh, increase in airplane capability and systems knowledge requirement and the airplane's ability to accelerate if it uh, ended up pointed downhill when it wasn't supposed to be. And all of these things added up to an initial high accident rate in the Beach Bonanzas. There are parallels in other aircraft types as well. When the uh, Cessna 310 was introduced, it had an initial high accident rate. I think that's because most pilots were transitioning out of a Cessna 140 or a 170 into that airplane. And uh, it took a while for the instructor community to learn how to properly teach it. Uh, the Learjets, when they first entered the uh, commercial fleet in the 60s, had a similar high accident rate, I think in part because the typical Learjet pilot was transitioning out of a Beach 18 at that point. And, and again, it was a big increase in capability that had to be absorbed by the, the instructional community. They had to people, it took time to learn how to teach people to make this transition. Uh, a lot of commercial jet pilot or a lot of commercial piston era pilots couldn't make the transition to jets. Of course, we've seen, uh, you know, we saw a similar thing uh, with the introduction of the Cirrus airplane, initially a very high accident rate. Uh, the instructional community did a superb job in the case of the Cirrus to, um, uh, develop a, a training and safety culture that has phenomenally improved that record. So, yeah, the Bonanza got a bad rap. It's always going to have that bad rap. Uh, I think it was simply a matter of uh, introducing an airplane into a market uh, where the pilots didn't have uh, a relevant background or experience to handle that airplane initially. And unfortunately, there were there was a, a big spate of accidents early on in the history during this transition period. Yeah. My somewhat controversial reply to people when they go down this path is part of the reason there are a lot of accidents in the Bonanza and the Cirrus, as you mentioned early on, is they're really great airplanes and they sold a lot of them. So uh, yes, yeah. the instructional community needed to adapt and, and all that. Mm -hmm. But part of it is anybody who's flown either one of those airplanes, they're, they're great machines, they're great performers, and they were commercially successful. And, and, you know, possibly the commercial success got ahead of the instructional community. But I, I know you're biased in this, but to me, talking about airplanes like the Bonanza, the Cirrus, you mentioned earlier transition training and how critical that is. What do you think the role is of type clubs uh, when we talk about airplanes like this? Do these improve safety? Is this something that if you're transitioning to a new airplane that just absolutely needs to be on your list? Well, there's actually been some um, academic uh, uh, research into this. Uh, Jeff Edwards uh, wrote his PhD thesis on what he calls 
the efficacy of type clubs. And he found a very, very strong correlation between uh, membership in a type club and a vastly reduced accident rate. Uh, it You don't even necessarily have to fully participate in the training opportunities that type club uh, offers. It appears that simply being exposed to the safety message that's portrayed through social gatherings and personal interaction and publications and now websites and online training uh, will help you learn more about the airplane and systems uh, and how to efficiently use those systems, manipulate those systems in a VFR and an IFR environment. Um, now, you could also say, and Jeff says in his, uh, in his thesis that, or in his paper, that uh, you can't 100% certainly say that it's the safer pilots that join the type clubs. It's not necessarily that the type clubs make the pilots safer, but uh, Putting a you know a broad spin on it, uh, for example, you know back to the Bonanza community, uh, these airplanes have been uh, produced in one way or one form or another for over seventy five years now. There's a huge history. Any technology is going to have a lifespan, and we may be getting relatively closer to the end of that lifespan. But the uh, the safety programs that we provide and the technical support that we provide to owners of these airplanes, I think, has probably added at least 20 years to the effective lifespan of these aircraft. And other type clubs are doing exactly the same thing in, in their uh, demographics. Tom, I want to ask you about gear up landings before we get to our ready to copy segment, because this is an area you've studied, I think, more than anybody I know. You've got a, a lot of data on this what you more accurately call landing gear related mishaps, which probably encompasses the full suite of incidents here. So I guess my first question is, why should we study these? I mean, aren't these fender benders? So do they really matter? Well, gear up landings and gear collapse mishaps, which is where the gear is down, but it doesn't stay down for some way, are by far the most prevalent um, accident scenario in retractable gear airplanes, not just the Bonanza bearing community, but as you said, uh, I did I, I did some research, oh, it's been 20 years ago now, uh, where I looked at the entire retractable gear fleet for about two years and, and found that the the, the rate of mishap is roughly the same across the board when you factor in the fleet size. But in any event, any one of these mishaps very, very rarely causes injury. And if you look at the description of the um, the damage that occurs, it's very often called minor damage. So it sounds like, yeah, it's a fender bender issue. The problem is that um, as a natural uh, consequence of a gear up landing, you always are going to have to replace a propeller and um, do an engine teardown inspection and probably do some engine repairs in addition to the sheet metal work and, you know, hanging new antennas on the bottom of the airplane and painting and that sort of thing. And so, again, back to the 2005, 2006 era, back then, the insurance industry was telling me that the average cost of repair after a minor damage gear up landing uh, in a single engine airplane was $60,000. And back then it was about $90,000 in a twin. It's mainly engine related costs. Now, figure you know inflation into that and look at what it is now. Uh, consequently, the cost of repairing a, even a minor gear up landing almost always totals the airplane. 
the insurance company will total it. It'll get parted out. So in the retractable gear community, gear up landings and gear collapse mishaps are the single most, uh, the single greatest threat to the longevity of the aircraft fleet. Uh, AOPA did a short video about two years ago now where they looked at the uh, the four most costly insurance claims scenarios. Not the things that happen the most constantly or frequently, but the things that when added all together cost the insurance industry the greatest amount of money. By a large margin, they say in their report, gear up landings are the biggest single cost item for the insurance community. And that's really telling because they're talking about the entire general aviation fleet, not just the 20% of us that have the ability to retract our landing gear. So uh, this problem of gear mishaps affects insurance costs and fleet longevity for everybody, not just those that have the gear up landing. Yeah, great point. When you first wrote that, it really opened my eyes that this is an issue for for all pilots, certainly all mm-hmm. aircraft owners as well. Is there a common theme there, the type of operation, the pilot experience, the weather? Is there something that connects most of these incidents? Well, uh, let's, let's very, very briefly, uh, I'll define the two types of mishaps I'm talking about. A gear up land or a gear collapse mishap where the gear is down and doesn't stay down or it doesn't go all of the way down and it folds up. Those are usually uh, they have some sort of mechanical component. Now, often the pilot uh, might have been able to get the gear down through an alternative gear extension process and didn't for some reason. But uh, but those account for about 60% of all of the landing gear-related mishaps, according to my studies. Uh, the other 40% and are, are uh, oops, I forgot, gear up landings. And that's usually what we talk about in this context. Those are almost always uh, coincident to some sort of pilot distraction in the traffic pattern. You're on downwind and you have to extend because somebody's coming in on a final. Uh, You've done multiple trips around the traffic pattern and you get complacent about it and you forget to put the gear down the last time. Interestingly, about half of all gear up landings happen during the conduct of dual flight instruction. And I think that's because by its nature, flight instruction is introducing new scenarios and purposely introducing distractions. So uh, I've written quite a bit and lectured quite a bit about the instructor's responsibility when flying, uh, when instructing in a retractable gear airplane, because uh, you wouldn't think that half of them happen in that scenario. And it's rarely someone who is brand new to the airplane type. Uh, gear up landings usually happen to someone who has substantial experience. So there's an element of complacency. But if there is one big issue, one overriding issue, it's it's an interruption in your normal flow patterns. So what I try to teach to uh, mitigate that are specific habits to follow uh, that will either uh, force you to put the gear down when it's appropriate in other words, uh, we use a, a technique called gear down to go down. Uh, you don't, uh, the way that you cause the airplane to start to descend on an instrument approach or from the visual pattern is by extending the landing gear, not by reducing power. So if you forget to put the gear down, it won't go down and you'll 
you'll look around and say, oh, yeah, I forgot the landing gear. Um, but most importantly, I, I really try to reinforce with the pilots whom with, that fly, with whom I fly uh, that you always make a very deliberate landing gear check on final approach. Uh, that way, if you've forgotten it at any other point, you have that one last chance to catch yourself before you touch down. Great tips, great uh, information. I think some surprising numbers in there as well. Tom, we always close these episodes with a lightning round we call ready to copy. So this is the fun part. Buckle your seatbelt. I'll ask some questions on a wide range of topics. You give me your quick answer. Are you ready to copy? All right. Ready to copy. It's a low IFR day and you're shooting an approach. Is the autopilot on or off? On most of the time. However, I'm watching it very closely. What is more challenging for an instrument pilot, an approach to minimums or a low visibility takeoff? I think a low visibility takeoff. We don't practice it very often. Should we practice it more? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, um, I wrote a column, uh, wrote a, uh, an article a while back uh, called That Extra Column. I think we ought to have a column in our logbook that logs not only instrument approaches, but IFR departures. Great idea. I would support it. What's the worst advice new pilots regularly get? What should we stop telling new pilots in training or shortly after they get their license? There are those who have and those who will have a landing, a gear up landing. Great answer. Great answer. Is it ever okay to exit an airplane with the propeller turning? This was a great topic in a couple of your newsletters. I'm lots of good debate on both sides. Where do you come down on this issue? If I've just got a quick drop off to make, can I leave the prop turning? Uh, I would not. I, I say no. Always is a is a hard word, but I would say no. You've written a great little checklist called the Aircraft Renter's Code of Conduct that I think more pilots should know about. Maybe I'll link to it here in the show notes. What is one of the most overlooked rules for being a thoughtful renter? Leave the airplane in a better condition than you found it. Post-maintenance test flights, we talked about these earlier. They can be risky, as you mentioned, with engine failures. A lot of times, maintenance-induced engine failures uh, is somewhere up on that list. Should a post-maintenance test flight always be flown in VFR? Can I take off and a little bit of light IFR to come home from the maintenance shop? Uh, uh, in my opinion, always make a local VFR flight, make it a short one, land, look in the cowling, do another leak check and engine inspection before you head off somewhere. You had a great paragraph in one of your recent newsletters I'll read here. It said, quote, who is the gatekeeper for the business or recreational pilot who meets even just barely the Part 91 requirements for flying in the current conditions? Is it the regulator, the insurance company, the flight instructor? So I'm curious, who do you think is it is? Who is the ultimate gatekeeper? Well, the ultimate gatekeeper is the individual themselves, but we don't, it, it's very difficult to make a self-evaluation. So I think of a flight, I think of flight instructors as the gatekeepers. Essentially, in my opinion, a, a flight review, the required flight review is a quality control check. And that's the point where we tell somebody, uh, yes, I think this is a good safe habit or no, this is not. You live in the Wichita area, self-proclaimed air capital of the world. <laughs> so what is the best, most interesting airport in the greater Wichita area? Uh, probably Stearman Field out east of town. There's a lot of diverse recreational aviation going on out there and a good restaurant. I would agree with that one. Great place to stop if you're in that area. Tom, our last question is always the same on pilot's discretion. 
You have one final flight and we want to know what are you flying and where are you going? I think I would like to take an A36 Bonanza and I would like to fly from Death Valley to Leadville, Colorado, the lowest to the highest airports in the continental United States. That is a new answer and a really good one. That sounds great. Tom, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you very much, John. Thanks for listening to Pilot's Discretion, brought to you by Sporties, training and equipping pilots worldwide for over 60 years. For more episodes and today's show links, visit sporties.com slash podcast. I'm John Zimmerman. We'll see you next time on Pilot's Discretion.